something has went terribly wrong. A seemingly normal person has turned out to be an absolute killer. Join me as we explore some of the most prolific serial killers and homicides of the 20th century. You're listening to Seven. Thank you for joining me tonight for another edition of Seven. I'm your host, K-Town. And tonight we're going to be talking about the East Area Rapist, also known as the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, who who somehow evaded arrest for a long, long time. Currently awaiting to stand trial for at least 13 murders, 50 rapes, and over 100 burglaries in California from 74 to 86. And my special guest tonight is a fantastic researcher. His name is John Quasar. He is an author of some great books, uh, everything from um, great mysteries concerning disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. He's also written about planes that disappear mysteriously. And I think I saw something on Bigfoot. And he also talks about the crimes of Jack the Ripper. So I'm definitely going to have him come back on this show. But tonight we're going to be talking about the East Area Rapist and the research that he's conducted on his own. He's so good, so good at it, that the FBI said that they would personally take any recommendations as far as um, suspects that he thought that they should look at in the case. And that is incredible in and of itself. So I must have mad respect for John and his ability to go through and try and help them with this case. So we're going to go ahead and bring out my special guest, John Quasar, to discuss the East Area Rapist. All right, John Quasar is my special guest. John, thank you for stopping by. Seven. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, you've done years of research into this uh, particular serial killer. If you don't mind to first start off and tell my listeners what interests you so much about this particular guy. Well, of all the cases I've <clears throat> investigated, whether they're, you know, X-Files type or cold cases, this one was actually close to me at the time. And I was presently bogged down in the Zodiac Killer investigation. And I had uh, developed uh, a joy for going out and photographing. I was never good at photography, but I started with Zodiac, started photographing all the crime scenes in the significant locations, and started working them together in a geo profile. And then I came across uh, Lieutenant Larry Crompton's book, Sudden Terror, uh, detailing his investigation of this uh, unstoppable night rapist known as the East Area Rapist. And despite living close to many of the crime scenes, I had never heard of him. And this is about 2011 that I get his book when it comes out. And it's a very thick book, 400 some odd pages. He, as a sheriff from Contra Costa County, kept the reports when they were being thrown out. So he had a lot of information. And I was able to go through, after reading the whole book, I mean, I recommend it to many people. And, uh, even as far away as New Jersey, people who read the book said they'd lock their doors and windows at night after reading that. 
And so I started uh, from the clues he gave. Sometimes he mentioned a street name, sometimes he didn't. But all the clues he gave, I found out where the locations were for the most part of all the houses. And this guy had about 50 rape victims, aside from turning into a murder down south. And so this, I started going to all these locations to photograph all the streets, to walk around, to try and discover just what this guy's was going in his mind, because, uh, you know, the streets were still with us. This was the only witness that was still with us intact, the locations. And he was so careful in how he surveyed that he followed a pattern, and their house would be variably by a canal, a city canal. So he'd walk the pathway behind the canal. Mm-hmm. And uh, by a park, and the house would be a corner house or second to the corner. He had such such a minute modus operandi that I began to back work. And I got hooked, investigating 65 or more cases. And I thought this was way too big for a book. Anyway, I wanted to contribute to finally outing this guy, solving it. And I thought only you know on my website could I do this. So I set up a whole section on the Quester Files. And it became, I don't know, a hundred and some odd pages with all this detailed video of the locations, the photographs, uh, excerpts from the reports. And mine was the first true website to ever go up about him. There was one that was a very nice one that just gave, you know, the dates and uh, general location and so forth and some license plate information of suspicious cars. But I, I brought it all to life for the Internet reader. And as I said, the purpose was either to solve the case or contribute significantly to that. And my my surprise, my stat counter went wild. A million and a half people regularly visited my website to see the updates on this investigation, and it continued to snowball until uh, actually the head of cold case in Orange County, which is one of the jurisdictions that was investigating the murders, he said he would accept any of my investigative material when, uh, on a person of interest, and they would process it down there to see if this was a viable candidate to be the East Area Rapist. And then also Sacramento County Sheriff in charge of the case started talking to me about it and would uh, accept my uh, spec list as well. And he would triage that to see if they were viable. It had to be very flattering being that you put so much time and effort into it. And they said that they would personally look at any suspects that you you know, thought that they should look at. So let me let me just go back to, and I want to talk about your suspect list. You, you didn't get Crompton's book until 2011, and you live near that area, and you've never heard of him. That's very interesting. Were they just not, was the news outlets not picking up on this? Why do you think that that is, being that this guy was just ruthless and so bold with what he was doing that he just wasn't known? Well, he began as a rapist, and rape doesn't really, serial raping doesn't stay within the databanks of society. Murder does. And I think that's one reason why he, for having sent cities into panic in the 1970s. He began in 1976, officially, in the East Area of Sacramento. That's where he got his handle, East Area Rapist. And so for about three years, he was uh, this home invasion rapist through Sacramento. Then Modesto, Davis, Stockton, then into the East Bay area of San Francisco where Crompton investigated him in Concord, went down as far as San Jose. He was over the northern part of the state. And then he just disappeared after three years and uh, was forgotten. The murders down south that began in 1979 were not linked to him right away. There was some suspicion. But until 20 years later, uh, when DNA did link 
him to a couple of the murders down there and a couple of the rapes in Contra Costa County, then it it still didn't. You know, there was a news report, 1997 or 2000, whenever it was officially declared. But the full extent of his crime spree was so massive, it was kind of hidden by the scope. And so now, you know, when it started getting much more, uh, well, frankly, it started getting a lot of attention with me from from the Internet. Crompton's book was self-published, so it really didn't get wide attention. But Todd Lindsay, a producer, is the one who got him on TV for the first real documentary in 2009. And so you're, it's just, it was a very slow process. People, it was just so massive, no one covered it. And I was the first one to put it all cohesively with pictures and video and information online. And if you didn't have that, you had to have Crompton's very thick book. And Crompton did dramatize it. He used the correct words of the victims and the East Area Rapist from the reports, but then he added fictional detectives and made it readable. And I don't have a problem with that because it really conveyed the drama of what uh, what was going on, whereas just a cold-hearted investigative book would not have done that. A few years after Crompton released his book, Lieutenant Shelby, uh, Richard Shelby, who was the, one of the lead detectives in Sacramento, released his, Hunting a Psychopath. And then Shelby's book is quite good too, but it would not have the impact had it been the first one because it really does rely on people understanding the case through Crompton's eyes already. And so basically, those are the two books. There's a private detective down south who wrote another self-published book, Hot Prowl, dealing with the murders. And outside of that, there was nothing but my website, and then other websites started popping up, and people were on message boards. And although I did get acquainted with some of them, they were very good investigators, there was an awful lot of static on the message boards that... uh, and the investigators really stayed away from. They kind of uh, lurked on the message boards. So you're talking about uh, it was not a very well-known subject matter, and it had to get to the public through self-published books, which is never a good thing. And so basically it came down to my website, and then they started doing uh, a couple more documentaries, Uh you know, 48 Hours did one, and they they were told to use my website as the source by one of the victim's sisters, by Michelle Cruz. So, uh, and then Todd Lindsay did another, the big one, right when it was solved. Todd Lindsay did that one again. So very, very narrow media interest in what was really, he was the number one serial predator in probably in world history. And I, I cannot entirely explain why he did not get more attention. Yeah, it's unbelievable, really. Why it came down to my website the most, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, really, you, you've done a fantastic job, really. Um, okay, let's let's talk about his early days when he just started out raping uh, women, because it, it just seems like he was totally fearless with some of the things that he was doing. He, uh, well, let's take it from 1976 when he officially began. Now that they've identified the most probable man, they're going back, of course, further into history. But as the East Area Rapist, he began in June 1976 on Phyllis. And she was home alone. And uh, he uh, got on a little birdbath in the back of the yard. He reached up with his knife and tried to cut the phone wire. 
and that failed. And so then he whittled away the door jam in the kitchen and got in the house and then started tapping on her door frame. She was, this is late at night. She wasn't asleep. So she woke up hearing this tapping and she got up and here's this guy standing there with his mask on and his shirt, nothing else holding a gun and a knife and tapping on there to get her to wake up. And that's when the terror began. He told her to stay still. He would, you know, he dramatically twisted around the, the, the sheet, the towels he was going to use to bind her and so forth. And so terror was always a part of it. He would speak through his teeth gritted, this hissing, threatening sound. And so he was only with her for about 30 minutes. He, uh, he raped her in that time. He went out, ransacked the house, stole minor things, as I recall. It sounded like he was talking to someone, but it was, might have just been talking to himself, make it sound like someone else was there. Or he was just crazy. And it escalated from there. He struck number two, two girls. And uh, this first one was in Rancho Cordova. The second strike was across the river in Carmichael, Del Deo area. And he bound one of them, one of the sisters, and then raped the the other one. And uh, so he, the way he did it, you could tell he'd looked in the windows. He saw where they both were. He must have been watching them for a while. So he goes and binds one first. And then he goes back and, and binds the other one. So he's crossing their rooms quietly. He was always very silent. And he would uh, do strange things. Like he appeared over this one's bed with these strange mitts in his hand from his her sister's drawer and a strange had on on the head uh, over his mask and it just escalated from there to several before eight victims before Sacramento finally issued in the paper an alert and they realized they had essentially the same guy the MO was so much the same the voice you know hissing speaking through gritted teeth and threatening it was terror was the big thing with him the victims even said that themselves they were more afraid of death than the raping that's just how he was. And then he'd ransack the house. He'd stay for hours in the house. He got so good at it. He would stay for hours. He would eat their meals. He would go out on the patio, drink a beer or two, leave the beer cans behind. Sometimes they weren't beer cans from the house. He brought stuff with him. And then he'd take some very irrelevant things. You know, it's not expensive stuff. And... Uh, Vaseline, he'd use a Vaseline jar or bring it with him for whatever he needed to do with the women. He'd throw it up on top of the roof. Police would find it on the roof afterward. So a lot of weird stuff. This was a real sexual terror, terrorist. Mm. And and didn't he, um, there was an incident where he was looking through the window of this little girl and she saw Oh, him. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was... Number that's number three. That was two doors down from Phyllis. Okay. They were right on the cross street, so they were the second house on the corner as well, on Malaga in Rancho Cordova. And yeah, the little girl heard uh, the prying. Her window was open. This was summer. This is August 29, 1976. And she heard this sound on her window, and she didn't think it was the wind. Her chimes weren't rustling. She had wind chimes in front of the open window. So she gets up on her bed and looks out and here's this guy in a mask with a screwdriver or something trying to get her screen off and he just stares at her. And then he, his face just sinks down. And so she goes and gets mom and says there's a guy trying to come in. So uh, 
the, the, she looks in the backyard. The mother goes with her into the room. And there he is again at the window. And they rush up to the window and see him run to the backyard. And so mom and her go into the kitchen. She's dialing operator. He, there was no 911 back then. So she's waiting for the operator to pick up. And they hear this crash in the bedroom door. They didn't go lock the window, you see. And then he emerged right there in the kitchen, uh, naked from the waist down, like he was at number one. He was just wearing a shirt, a lineman type of belt, and his mask. And then he had a gun and uh, some kind of baton in his hand, and he told her to put it down, and the whole ordeal began there. And the mother was able to finally fight him off. She got in a fight with him first, and then she was pleading with him not to do this, and then she got in another fight and broke to the door, and uh, he couldn't stop her and the girl from running out, so he ran out. And the elder sister that was in the bedroom hearing this got out her screen and ran to the neighbors as well. And he walked out the, the door, walked across the street, squatted in the bushes, w watching for a while. And a neighbor was watching him and thought he had on white boxers or something because his such a tan line. And apparently that's just how white he was where he wasn't tan because he was bottomless. And then he got away from there somehow. By the time the sheriffs came, you know, he was gone. Uh, she was being tended. The mother was being tended in the neighbor's house. And they looked inside and he had come through the window. He had uh, gotten the screen off. He had reached up onto the eaves, I suppose, and just threw himself in feet first, knocked the drapery uh, rod down and the wind chimes and just jumped into the kitchen then to get at them. So, you know, even when he was seen twice, he would not stop. So that that's very good, you know, an idea of what this guy was like at the extent that he did reconnoiter a neighborhood and then a house and get a potential victim in mind. And then once he was there, he wasn't going to stop. All right. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors for tonight's edition. We're happy to have a partnership with Shutter. For those of you that don't know what Shutter is, Shutter is the best when it comes to premium streaming video service covering the whole gamut of horror, thrillers, the supernatural, and even their own originals. And you can start streaming all the creepy goodness right now for just $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. I think we all can agree that right now is the perfect time to take advantage of this expertly curated Netflix of horror. And you can stream from many different devices such as Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, Android devices, and even your iPhone or iPad. The first thing I did when I logged on is I went straight to the Supernatural selection. They have all the great favorites, of course, the Halloween series and Friday the 13th collection. But I also ran across one that will really creep you out. It will remind you of a snuff film, and it's called Therapy. And Therapy is about Jane and Simon, who are two young police officers leading a routine investigation following the discovery of hidden video equipment in an abandoned house by a night watchman. It is disturbing, so you'll have to check that one out, along with their exclusive titles like Creep Show, Mandy starring Nicolas Cage, Lizzie, One Cut of the Dead, and many more. I want you to follow my lead and find out why I love Shudder. You can get started today streaming the best in horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Again, Shudder's expertly curated 
Collection of titles include Pieces, The Mutilator, Madhouse, From the Dark, and many, many more. To try Shudder free for 30 days, just go to Shudder.com and use the promo code 7. And Shudder is spelled S-H-U-D-D-E-R. Again, to try Shudder free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use the promo code 7. And Shudder is spelled S-H-U-D-D-E-R. Remember that by supporting Shudder, you are supporting 7. John, how was he choosing his victims? Do you know? I think he used a variety of methods. There would be a string of hang-up phone calls vexing the neighborhood prior, sometimes weeks, sometimes months prior to uh, an incident. And so he was learning the routine of the entire neighborhood. Uh, From the reports, it's clear from his pattern of what homes he was in that he did have more than one victim in mind. If one was not there on the intended night, then he would go to an alternate instead of simply leaving the neighborhood. So he did an awful lot of stalking within a neighborhood and uh, got in the homes. He would do double, triple jeopardy, getting in there, uh, taking little things in advance, picture maybe of them, hiding his ligatures under the sofa cushions, and then coming back days later or a week later or something. So he basically knew the routine of the block. He knew the routine of the victims, potential victims. And uh, he just went from there. And on the given night that he intended to strike, if one was not present, he would go to the alternate. So he knew an awful lot about them. No one could figure out how did he get all these phone numbers? Uh, How did he have all this time to do this stalking of a neighborhood? Uh, The sheriffs were investigating these reports of unidentified, you know, the cars were in the neighborhood. People didn't know who they belonged to before the fact. A young guy with blonde hair was seen here and there before the fact it was always of course when the sheriffs canvassed the neighborhood after the rape that they would come up with information of what was going on before and then they'd uh, turn up the phone calls were happening this guy was being seen in the neighborhood cars they could not identify were being seen in the neighborhood or parked in the neighborhood that's all they had to go on but no one ever actually got a you know good look at him or even told the police i keep seeing the same guy in the neighborhood every day, and we don't know who he is. I mean, they they didn't get anything like that? Never. No, I was sure they did. A lot of other investigators were sure. I had whole pages on all these. I think there's over 300 uh, sketches and identicates of a suspicious, quote-unquote, young man seen in the neighborhood before the fact, because he wouldn't be seen after the fact, obviously. And so that's all we ever had to go on. There was only one sketch taken in perpetration, and that was almost like a comic book uh, sketch. And the victim, number 15, in Rancho Cordova was in hypnosis to try and recover it. But she had looked up when he was uh, at her blindfold, and she looked up through the blind and saw him looking down, and he had one of the balaclavas that just had the visor for the eyes. So he had pulled it down under his chin. And so she could see the face with the, the ski mask tied around it. And that was it. And the, what was produced from that was nothing but, you know, a, a cartoon image. And it didn't look like really the, most of the other sketches. So anybody, including me, the official 
investigators had to rely on all these dozens of released and not released uh, identikits showing suspicious persons. And eventually the investigation itself uh, evolved where in the beginning, according to Shelby, even he issued in the newspaper at the time that they believe the guy was 25 to 35 years old. He had dark shoulder length hair and blue eyes. This slowly evolved to a young man, even younger, late teens to uh, early 20s, who had dishwater blonde hair and possibly blue or hazel eyes. So he kept getting younger with time. He was associated with riding bikes. His hair color changed. His hairiness changed. The first victim said this guy was really hairy with hairy arms and legs. Mm-hmm. One even said she was sure the guy shaved his legs because she felt stubble and he was raping her. And so then it evolved to a guy that had uh, very light colored hair and very thin hair on his arms and legs and a different eye color. One, the, the boy, victim number seven in Del Deo was very insistent that when the guy looked at him in the hallway, he was in the light. He had very stark, deep blue eyes. And it was on little that little 10-year-old boy's word uh, that the police believed he did have blue eyes for a while. So the and, the descriptions of him were all over the place. Yes, they were. And this was another hairy guy. He said he had hair on his arms and legs, a lot of it. Mom said he had hair on his arms but didn't see the eyes. No, didn't remember the eye color. So we have to face the fact either there was more than one guy involved or people were just that that poor with trying to, you know, describe him. Yeah. That he was that good at hiding himself. It's still unexplainable, even with the guy pending trial. It is still unexplainable how he did what he did. Yeah, because um yeah, that in itself is just unbelievable. That that he could um, be so comfortable in and out of neighborhoods where he doesn't know anybody and be there so often that no one, you know, would suspect him or, or at least report it. And, and they get some kind of um, really good description on who this guy is. It's just unreal. Oh, I want to, I want to ask you this, um, John, the FBI, did they get involved? They would not have jurisdiction in that, uh, Technically, since he did take victim number nine uh, behind the house, that would count as kidnapping, then another one, then it's a federal case. But uh, they would remain back collating data. They got involved when uh, CODIS got the hits, and this was over the state that this guy was killing down south and, and had raped in the north. So then you have a point where the FBI has to start collating all the data in the criminal, you know, data banks, uh, the DNA matches. That's what they do best. But as for street investigating, it, it remained all within the local jurisdictions. So when did he start killing or when was he thought to kill his first victim? Oh, well, now there's a big controversy. Did he kill Claude Snelling in uh, 1975 in Visalia? Did he kill before that? Officially, he killed... Uh, well, he was not even suspected to have killed the Majoras in 1978. So that became that came about decades later that he they're now going to charge they've charged him with that. 
So officially back then when they tied everything together, it would have been uh, Manning and Offerman in Goleta, which is near Santa Barbara. And that would be his first uh, killings. That was in December 1979, in which apparently I would have to say he was not planning to do it. But Offerman challenged him. Offerman was found shot in the chest in the back with one with a ligature tied around one wrist. So he was not fully tied yet or he got loose. And then his uh, partner, Deborah Manning, was shot execution style in the back of the head in bed. So after the shooting happened, EAR was quick and got rid of her. And uh, they found her jewelry stuck behind her her bed you know, between the mattress and the wall. So they thought this was just some robbery in the beginning before he told them to put a guest leg on their stomach so he could tie them up. But then Offerman must have taken him on and he started shooting. And of course, he knew that was going to bring the cops pretty quick. So he got rid of her fast and then got out of there. And uh, he either, you know, liked it so much now that he waited months and he planned carefully. And his next victims were identical to his EAR victims. And uh, he bound them, the whole routine he did up in Northern California. And then took the woman to another room, raped her, brought her back. And he killed the guy with one blow to the head, a bludgeon. And then the woman with another, with more bludgeons. And left it there. And uh, it was the same routine, only now he was killing intentionally, but not with a gun. He was rather imitating the bedroom basher. So I think he might have been trying to hide his M.O., some extent and after that he was bludgeoning all of his victims in the same manner but his stalking getting in the house raping rummaging it was all the same as the east area rapist only now the victims were all murdered and they were now months apart he was very careful now he knew what he was doing and so he waited months in between without raping anybody else it was just murder now wow um now, can you tell me, because there were times when he had a, a male victim and a female victim at the same time. Was What was he doing to the male victim? Well, that began up uh, up in Sacramento. He had been uh, selecting the women when they were home alone. And, uh, and finally, a couple. And so he you know, would enter the room. He'd wake them up. He'd growl over the guy, put the gun up to him, had a flashlight in his face and told him exactly what he was going to do and would make the girl then bind the man. He would then go over and bind the girl and then he'd come back and retie the man, make sure he was tight. He would uh, threaten the guy that if he heard any sound, he's going to come back and uh, blow his brains out or he'll he'll cut her ear off out there, kill her and cut her ear off or something and bring it to him. He had various excuses, but then he'd take her to the family room and he'd come back after going to the kitchen. He'd put plates and saucers on the man's back. He said, if I hear these rattle, I'm going to come back and blow your brains out or kill you. And he'd put the gun, you know, bang, bang, bang up to the face and, and say stuff like that and whisper in the ear, you know, hiss through his gritted teeth what he's going to do to the guy. And then he'd go back out and he would... Uh, It started a long process of raping and terrorizing the woman, ransacking the house. And if he heard plates rattle, which sometimes he did, he'd run back there and threaten the guy that he's going to, as I said, you know, cut her ear off and bring it to him and uh, threaten to kill him again. He never did kill one of the men 
uh, but he, you know, his whole thing was terror. And then this, you know, imagine this going on for hours. And that's how he would treat his victims uh, in the house. And he would, uh, such as with one victim, one female victim, he would then quietly pad up to her because, you know, they could hear him leave the room and go rummage and then it would be quiet and they wouldn't know what's going on. They wouldn't know if it's time for them to try and get their ligatures off and call the sheriffs. You know, he would leave quietly. No one would ever know. They'd be there sometimes 30 minutes, an hour, not knowing he wasn't there anymore. So he would uh, play off that. With one victim, he padded up to her very quietly and then started snipping scissors next to her ear and made her jolt and then would tell her to shut up and not do anything. So you have to understand that terror was the big thing with this guy. There was no one like him in the annals you know, of crime, the way he uh, so carefully spent the time to uh, find a victim and then spending hours in the house terrorizing and yet not waking up children sometime. Even though it went on, a couple times one woke up and he was just saying, I'm playing a trick on mommy, you want to come watch? Or he'd uh, put a teacup over their door or something. In one house he strung uh, ropes or, you know, uh, clothesline binding between doorknob to doorknob, creating this lattice between doors in the house. Even though she was alone, no one could figure out why he did that. But it was apparently to keep the doors from opening. Okay, early on when when he started killing, um, were were they sure that it was being done by the same guy, or were, were there some 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 um, thoughts that maybe they weren't connected at all? Or can you tell us about that? There were there were doubts whether there was uh, the sheriffs. A couple of sheriffs up north here were suspicious and it rated a news article that uh, the East Area Rapist was the killer down south because of the overall MO of stalking since he followed such an obvious pattern of, you know, homes on canals, across from a park, behind a park, second house uh, from the corner. But, uh, you know, since the guy was so profoundly good at stalking, there was no way to prove it at the time. And since he was now using the M.O. essentially of the bedroom basher, it was quite different. And he was striking months apart now, not, you know, one month up here in May 1977, I believe he struck five times. And uh, so he was very prolific up here. Whereas down south, these were murders extending over a couple year period of time. And of course, there were no witnesses afterward to say what he said in the house, what he did since he killed them. So the sheriffs up here only had the location of the house, the stalking pattern to say that this they believe it was their guy. But other than that, they had no evidence back then since the victims were both bludgeoned to death. And that was not his M.O. to bludgeon any uh, victim. Right. And how was he thought to be getting away from these uh, locations? Um, was he, and I thought I read something about he might have been using um, the drainage ditches and things like that. Well, the murder locations, uh, it's hard to say just how he, one was in a gated community. So how he got in and found them to begin with, I don't know, but he must have parked outside of it and gotten down the hillside again. Well, that would be the Dana uh, Point couple. Uh, how he, 
you know, he just stalked the neighborhoods like he did and would uh, always stalked at night. Obviously, we can say this now after the fact, since all those, you know, dozens of uh, identikits, you know, the sketches of supposed. Yeah, we're so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all some young guy with long hair down to his shoulder. And now, you know, D'Angelo was a cop with short hair. And I don't think he was wearing a wig all this time and looking younger. Uh, he was just stalking at night perpetually, and no one saw him. He just went through the yards. He went over fences. The dogs could be, you know, heard barking, and a prowler would get in the yard and then jump over the fence to another yard. But I don't think he was ever out there in the street. I don't think he ever was associated with most of these cars during the uh, daytime that were being reported. They were always a jalopy, too, See an, an older car. And uh, so maybe they'll turn up in the investigation how he could have, uh, you know, had access to all of these if they were from the police impounding yard. I don't know. I thought he had to be an auto wrecker if that was all true. That's the pathway I followed. And uh, I just think it's going to come down to the fact that he was just how he had this kind of time is amazing, but he just stalked at night and it was over months that he would uh, prepare for a victim. This seems to be obvious in a couple of cases where he's uh, assumed to have been the, the prowler, but he never struck in the neighborhood because he encountered so much heat from being chased away. Like uh, one incident I wrote about that was released very late in the game a few months before he was uh, apprehended. That street uh, up there where uh, he almost ran down the cop in a little car. Ran down Weinberger or something, Mar- uh, Marv Weinberger, whoever the uh, cop was. And so there, it's a perfect uh, MO of how these area rapists rape. You find an empty home, he would enter it. He would use it as a base of operations to uh, scout the neighborhood and watch people. And then come back and strike. But in this case, he was seen by uh, a husband who chased him, a big 250-pound, six-foot-five guy. And he saw the smaller guy just with one arm grab on top of the fence and catapult himself over. He couldn't believe this guy was that athletic. And uh, after that EAR didn't strike, the police officer, I should say, to stay chronologically, the police officer was called Marv Weinberger, I believe was his name. He was out there on the street, you know, with his flashlight trying to figure out what was going on when this small little Japanese car started up down the street pulled out, came racing toward him, swerved around him. He just missed him and pulled out of there. And that was assumed to be the guy that the husband was chasing. And then EAR never came back to that neighborhood to uh, prowl again. But everything about the that, uh, that incident suggests that was him being foiled, scouting a neighborhood. And so that would really underscore that he came at night found an empty home, and I mean empty, not just uh, no Not just nobody night. living there. You're talking about completely uh, empty. Yeah, an empty home. It's in between being sold or purchased. That became very much part of his MO. There was always a house for sale, or the house had just been sold or was up for market that the victims were in. So that made them look through all the real estate listings to see if this guy you know, was a real estate agent, and he was somehow going through... Uh, that's how he found out the layouts of these houses or whatever. And all that's proven wrong now. Mm. 
I imagine the FBI had to put their best profilers on this case. Can you tell us about their psychological profile for him? It didn't go anywhere. Everybody turned out to be wrong. Uh, but they uh, they put, uh, actually it was uh, 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 a doctor profiler in Florida who did the most on it. Escapes me. I think her name was Leslie, first name. I forget, but she, uh, she did the profile. And of course, they're always very cautious. They say this is based on what we've been told. And uh, no one... No one imagined really that it was a cop. No one imagined that anybody had this kind of time. So he uh, he beat everybody, but then he had uh, criminal education, you know, criminal justice education as well. So he knew to foil. And I think that's what he was doing. He would stutter, make it sound like he was mentally disturbed. He would sound like he was a druggie in a rage. Everything was a red herring to confuse people as to what this guy was like. And so no one went anywhere with profiling. Geo-profiling was also done. One uh, one guy said he's based in uh, Carmichael or Citrus Heights. It's got to be around there. I came up later and said he's, because I had a suspect that heavily fit as far as I was concerned, and said it all fits that he's coming from the foothills from Placerville, back to an area where he knew, where he grew up living. That's what my person of interest had done. And uh, that was actually the closest. By surprise, I had the wrong guy. But in reality, D'Angelo came not from Placerville up Highway 50 in the foothills, but from Auburn up Highway 80, the highway that runs roughly parallel to 50, but goes up much further. So he came down from Auburn, which is, of course, quite far. And then through Citrus Heights and Carmichael and back to Rancho Cordova, where he did grow up. So I just had the wrong highway and the wrong town, but essentially the same same pattern. Oh, that's you did? How, okay. Clever this, that's how clever this guy was, that he came from that far, from the foothills, to where he had grown up. Whereas I thought he came from Placerville, he came from Auburn. And went to uh, Rancho Cordova. He really worked it uh, quite opposite because uh, for my geo profiling, it looked like he came from and struck along Highway 50 the first, so that would that would point to Placerville. Highway 50 comes from Placerville to the East Bay, to the East area of Sacramento, to Rancho Cordova, to La Riviera, where he struck the heaviest. Then he thins out more as he goes into the cross streets. He stuck closer to the highways. Then he only struck a couple times near Highway 80 in the north east area, so I thought that was getting a little too far for him, and so that accentuated that he was coming from Placerville on Highway 50. But in fact, he was that clever. He was coming right down Highway 80 from Auburn, and avoided striking anywhere convenient right off the highway, and he went deep in down through the entire east area to Highway 50, and then. To Rancho Cordova. So he reversed the pattern entirely to make it look like he was coming locally or from this area in the south rather than from the northeast. He was very, very shrewd. And very intelligent. Um, yeah. Was was that was that uh, something that they considered early, early on or later on, even that this guy had to know something about uh, crimes and murders and how they were investigated? No, I from whatever. Uh, Shelby and Crompton wrote 
No, they the guys' age started getting younger from these you know persons of interest seen in the neighborhood. These young guys in jalopies. His hair was longer down around his shoulder. It was blonde, blue-eyed. Uh, nothing indicated a cop. This was a punk, and they were looking at punks. They kept uh, looking at known rapists, guys that had been in the jail, or some kid that was riding a bike all the time. Bikes were quite associated with uh, his stalking mo. And so they they were well founded to go after uh, guys in their mid teens to early twenties. The scope in Sacramento became fourteen to forty five. They were going to look at anybody. That's how confusing all the sheriff's canvassing made it by talking to all the uh, neighbors and reporting these people that were seen and the sound of the voice on the phone, perhaps that was calling. And it was all amazingly uh, bogus that uh, he was that careful just to stalk at night. And I guess there are reasons for these jalopies to be in the neighborhoods, for these guys to be around, or we've got, you know, more than one. But it in Sacramento, you cannot really say because there's no DNA. And it's in Sacramento where you have the extreme differences in reports that he's dark-haired, blue-eyed, and very hairy on his arms and legs in the beginning. But this is alternating with a guy who has brownish blonde hair and very thin hair on his arms and legs. Were you able to talk to any of the original detectives that worked the case early on? Oh, yes. And victims. And, uh, you know, they the, the detectives wrote their material out what they believed. And uh, Shelby even said he could make a case for two rapists. Uh, I think they were all doing a good job. But no one suspected anybody that this prolific, who could spend this kind of time stalking. I mean, when he wasn't striking, he was stalking in another community. So it's like this was a 24-7 hobby for this guy. So no one would ever suspect a full-time working guy. Everything pointed to a punk who had access to all these old cars. And the victims didn't, you know, know. They thought it was, uh, some thought he was stuttering quite sincerely. Others thought he was truly on drugs. Others thought he was acting. Some thought he had a German accent. Some thought he had an Hispanic accent. Some thought he had olive skin. Some thought he had very light skin. What so what, what about these calls that were coming in, John? Because they, they got, um, I know that quite a few calls were coming in. And I was wondering if any of them were considered to actually come from him or were they print calls or what? I think they were just crank calls. I mean, the excitement's crave and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to strike tonight, that kind of... Uh, I don't think he was too clever to want to give the police any help. The one, uh, the one thing I'm not sure about is in that incident I told you about that uh, where, his, where he almost ran the cop down. Now that, uh, the guy that chased him off that night, the husband, they began to have problems indicating they were being watched. And uh, a guy got in their house again, left footprints, tennis shoe footprints on their washing machine. They put a burglar alarm in after that. And so with the guys installed the burglar alarm and some guy got in the house afterward and got through the window, left shoe prints on the washing machine or dryer in order to get up into the ceiling and was trying to disconnect the 
the alarm and had left a little note that he's going to get even with them and, and kill them for uh, for that, which indicates he was watching that place really carefully uh, afterward. And so uh, that might be the one case where he actually threatened uh, an actual individual who thwarted him. And but otherwise, uh, leaving notes or calling stuff like that with he would call the victims. Yes. You know, I'm going to kill your husband or something. Or there's the phone call that uh, which is assumed to be him calling Phyllis, number one, victim number one on January 2, 1978, I believe it is. When she said, I'm going to kill you. Have you heard that one? No, I haven't. I haven't heard that one. That is uh, believed to be him. I'm sure I have a link somewhere to that, or you can hear it on YouTube. It's going to kill you. Uh, it sounds like a kid with a nasal problem. I mean, it really does sound like a kid. And uh calls her the B word repeatedly, and it was recorded because the sheriff set a trap on the line. And there were other calls coming into former victims at that time, so who else but he could have even gotten that... Uh, gotten those phone numbers and known the victims unless it was really him and he was calling and terrorizing them. But it sure doesn't sound like his voice. It sounds like a little kid's voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, was he thought to actually hate women? Uh, I don't know. They're going to assume that, of course. Yeah. I don't know if what the... I'm sure they're going over D'Angelo right now. All the shrinks are having a field day, but it, my understanding is he's still not talking and he's not going to talk. He's going to go quietly and never explain how he did all this because they, they still can't explain it. I'm sure they've worked it out more knowing, you know, who he is now. I have his address where he lived in Auburn and all that. All I can do is geo profiling. I can't uh, really get into his mind about what the motive was, but if he's also the Visalia ransacker, I just, this guy really had a kink for all the, the ransacker hit hundreds of homes. Uh, he's believed to be the one that killed Claude Snelling when he couldn't get away with Beth Snelling. So there's just nothing stopped him for years, for a decade, going off and on. He was just some fanatical prowler without any rational motive. He was stealing blue, st- blue chip stamps, eating ice cream. Everything pointed to a kid in Visalia when the Visalia Ransacker was active in 70, what, 73 to 75. And uh, then, of course, they thought it was a young guy up here, and it's a 30-something cop. Um, Being that he was a cop, was he able to, and I don't know how their systems worked back then or what they had access to, but could he have accessed their phone numbers and things like that uh, using, like, their computers and whatever was available back then? I suppose he would have had a city directory in which everybody's number would be listed, not an actual, you know, city directory. They're called uh, poke directories. Everybody was in there plus their street address. And that's how he could tell. Uh, you know, libraries have those. The police certainly would have had them. Big businesses would have had them. Uh, but a, a basic city directory would not have contained all the information. So I'm sure he was using those and the police would certainly have those. But it's a question of the time element. You know, you not only have a guy that's spending all this time at night stalking a neighborhood and not being seen, obviously. Uh, you have uh, you have a guy who's then calling at all hours of the day. Where is he doing all this from? The people never heard 
uh, traffic on the other end. I mean, how is he doing this? He must have had one hell of a phone bill. Right. And it's uh, it, it doesn't make sense how he had the time to do all of this. But DNA obviously shows he was the guy who raped a few of the victims in Contra Costa and is the murderer. So, you know, they've got him for it. But in Sacramento, it becomes very confusing because that's where he struck so many times. 38 victims in Sacramento and then in the surrounding communities. It is just uh, how he did all this. Uh, it's eventually going to come out, <clears throat> excuse me, from the uh, from what they're back working now that they have him. But it's uh, it's something you know from talking to the cops they couldn't figure out how uh, how anybody had this kind of time when he was first arrested when D'Angelo was first arrested. One of the former heads of the investigation, Lieutenant Larry Poole, said, "I don't know when this guy had time to sleep." Everybody was stunned that this was a cop living way up in the foothills a full-time cop who could drive from there and then go to the East Bay area. It's about an hour to, from Sacramento proper, it's about an hour into the East Bay and then going down to Sac to San Jose is an hour and a half. So we're talking three hours traveling just to do those long-distance attacks in Contra, Contra Costa County and Fremont and those places. Then he's there for you know a couple few hours and uh, then he's at work in the daytime. Okay, so you know, did his, you know, I'm, and I don't know nothing about their psychology and how they think of things like that, but you would think someone would say, you know what, this cop, this guy is really strange, and he's just doing stuff that is just, um, you know, somebody needs to just um, sit down and talk to him. Did his coworkers say anything about him, like, um, you know, that they thought he was doing something crazy and that he needed to be you know have a psychological evaluation or w what were they saying about him not from what i've heard no uh, one of the uh guys in the uh, exeter police department when he was down near visalia before he was transferred back up to the uh to auburn became a cop there said he didn't seem to have a sense of humor uh he took things seriously but he was a good cop he was actually in charge of burglary investigations one of those cops that specialized in that. And then uh, up in Auburn, he when he got approached over why he was, you know, got arrested, I guess it was, something like that, uh, the chief of police, and he had a big fight and uh, from getting fired, and he threatened to kill the chief of police in response. So he obviously had one crazy temper and was getting worse who they would want to ask the most is his wife. How could she possibly have been ignorant of his, uh, his schedule doing all this stuff? Right. And she what did she say? From, well, she won't talk. She divorced him and she won't talk. She's an attorney, so she knows how to do it. And, uh, so it's, uh, that's what I think they really wanted to, uh, get out his, his scheduling. Again, you know, it's, it's how did he have time to do this, all the phone calling from where, the working and then gone all night somewhere else, you know, and he's not on duty, so doesn't she get suspicious? He was. Was he showing up for work um, every day? Was he missing work or was he there when he was supposed to be? I, I, I think he wasn't missing work. There was nothing that would make him suspicious. So he would certainly have days off. And they're going to do that. They're going to reconcile his work schedule with his strike schedule, how he was striking the homes. But still, the prowling was almost even perpetual when you put it together. 
you know, because then they'd, you know, they'd begin reports of this strange guy over weeks, dogs and prowlers, dogs barking at prowlers in the backyards. The uh, Sacramento sheriffs did a superb job over all the stalking that went on in Cordova Meadows before the the Majoras were murdered, and it is classic East Area Rapist stalking pattern. And I have detailed article online straight from the sheriff telling me all the stuff. And then they put it online to the sheriff's office. Uh, this was before it was solved, and they were sure this could lead to something here because the stalking pattern was taken down in detail without any doubt because this was a murder. And so the sheriff's working homicide took a canvas the neighborhoods and got all these stalking reports, prowler reports, phone call reports, and uh, took it all down in detail and didn't tell anybody in rape because homicide and rape didn't communicate back and forth. The majors were not suspected of being the victims of the East Area Rapist. But when the guys in charge of the case, like Ken Clark, went over the old documentation and saw the sheriff's report on the canvassing, of the neighborhood right away recognized it as classic East Area Rapist pattern of calling, sometimes at 8 p.m. every night, and uh, then working through the neighborhoods and checking. You know, they had each house and address down each time when this prowler was there trying to get in, being seen, how he had gotten in and gotten through the house, but took nothing of value. You know, it was pure canvassing by the, the victim. And then the the details of that night can be put together, and it really does point to their murderer being the same guy that was prowling. And that is, of course, the pattern of the East Area Rapist. That's going to be one of the biggest uh, links they have to him, that he killed the Majoras, because Brian Majora caught him prowling or something and confronted him on that night, February 2, was it, 1978? said, what are you up to here? And the kid upstairs saw the confrontation between either a masked guy or, or some guy in the yard. And this other guy, the fence was down, blown down from the storm. So what it all amounted to, I don't know. But it's the way the sheriff back worked it, telling me that they're, little, they're walking their little dog, Thumper. Since the fence was down, he wandered into the yard and started yipping at this guy crouched there, the hysteria rapist, you know, uh, prowling the house. The dog was found in the pool, so it figures that the East Area Rapist picked the dog up and threw him in the pool to shut him up. And then Brian walked in and said, why'd you do that to my dog? And they get in a big fight, and then he shoots Brian point blank in the chest and the back of the neck. And then she starts running, shouting for help, and he chases her through another yard and shoots her in the head while she's trying to get out the neighbor's gate. He jumps the gate, his footprints in blood on their patio, and uh, runs a little bit. Puts, a, puts his mask on, runs a little bit, seen by a neighbor, then turns around and runs the other way. And then the it all is, is backworked with all the uh, stalking of that night and prowling. And so it not only is this going to be used to link him to, as their murderer, but it shows us to what extent he called routinely, called several people, and then went from home to home in a wide neighborhood area just uh, – narrowing down who his next victim was going to be. So it's quite invaluable. The detailed link on my, the article on my site would be uh, be something they can get from the East Area Rapist uh, main page. 
and it would be on the Cordova Meadows cases. There's uh, copies of the sheriff's maps and the locations where they were getting calls. Okay. Um, have you thought about this? I think it's very interesting. And, and he was in the Navy, but many of these serial killers are former military. I wonder why that is. That's just very strange. Well, some of them aren't, you know, the rosiest people in the world and they get in the military and uh, they get training how to kill and military might boot them. You know, it doesn't mean they're, they served with the greatest distinction. Other military guys might have hated them. But, uh, you know, they just, a lot of guys back then were doing their time and then came back out. And uh, it was the, the era, too, that, you know, you can't uh, minimize the anti-establishment movement, the counterculture, and the effect it had on society and how permissive things were becoming. And uh, criminals just take it to a much greater extent. Because so many were around, and they were not striking, you know, the usual victims are, of course, going to be prostitutes down on the strip somewhere, or some tenderloin killing, stuff like that. Uh, during that era, the serial killers started going after John and Jane Q. Citizen. So they were going after the establishment. They were creating a greater terror campaign. The Zodiac Killer did that. Manson's people did that. Uh, the Zebra Killers were doing that. Uh, Simbanese Liberation Army was doing that. East Area Rapist was most certainly doing that. It was something that struck fear in the mainstream, and that's what they wanted. They wanted to feed off the terror of the time, whereas that's not usually the uh, the MO you see in serial killers. They're out there killing call girls or something easy, or kids, sadly. and. Uh, just to look through the cold case databases of all these that are online from these jurisdictions around the country, you can see what the general victim usually is of a serial killer. And it's just not your average John and Jane Q citizen. But back then it was. Right. Can you tell us about the case right now? Where are they in, in his case? They're talking to a brick wall from what I understand. He's going to go out quietly, not letting anybody know how he could have possibly done this. I assume they're speaking a lot with his wife. All this is going to be restricted. There's going to be an interesting trial. I don't think they should have uh, opened it up to the Sacramento cases. They should have left it to the DNA cases of the murders. They had him on 13 charges of murder. So it's not like they don't have the guy. You know, I mean, they've got DNA on him. They're going to toast him. But I think there was a desire for too much publicity to get involved. And they started looking at old laws, sentences here and there saying that since he took them, the victims, from the bedroom to the family room, this might constitute kidnapping, and there's no statute of limitations on that. So that now Sacramento, that could not have prosecuted him because the statute of limitations had expired on rape. Then Contra Costa County as well, that wanted to uh, <clears throat> get involved. But since statute of limitations had expired, nobody could do anything about it. There's no statute of limitations on murder, so only the three counties down south could prosecute him. So that's where he murdered. Well, now they kind of read read these sentences differently, and they think they can charge him with kidnapping in all these cases in Sacramento and Contra Costa County. And I think that's going to unnecessarily complicate the case because it's going to bring up some of the evidence we just talked about. It's going to bring up the fact there is no DNA to prove it was him. It's going to bring up the very starkly different descriptions, especially in Sacramento, that alternate between a 
dark-haired, blue-haired guy who was about 5'9", and a taller, blondish guy with light hair on his arms and legs. And this is so consistent that you have to suspect there's more than one guy involved, and that's just going to, I think even an average defense attorney is going to bring this up, that this is not only in the reports, this has been published by sheriffs who had the reports, like Shelby's in his book, like Lieutenant Larry Crompton in his book. And so how, without DNA, can you say all of these are D'Angelo, who had the lighter hair, who has the hazel eyes, DNA proved. I actually had the information before he was caught that there was 97% probability that he had green to hazel eyes from the DNA test they did. So that's why those of us in the know knew he didn't have blue eyes. But again, this does not apply to Sacramento where there was no DNA. Now, D'Angelo has the lighter skin. He has lighter hair on his arms. You can see in the old pictures, he doesn't even look like he has hair. And he has the hazel eyes. So who is this guy with the blue hair and the dark eyes and the very hairy arms and legs? Very hairy arms and legs. Who might have shaved his legs at some time. And I think a defense attorney is going to get him off of, you know, clear him from cases that should not have been tried. Because, you know, he's going to say, here's these definite descriptions from victims reported by the sheriffs in books, and they don't match D'Angelo, but you're calling this guy also the East Area Rapist, and you have no DNA. And that's just going to cast doubt on everything in Sacramento, what can actually be applied to uh, to D'Angelo. Yeah. That so why, why confuse it just to get media publicity or to, in a misguided way try and satisfy one of the victims, one of the male victims who, you know, it was obvious his girlfriend that was raped, so he wasn't really the ultimate victim. But he got really upset that there was no way that Sacramento could try uh, try this guy anymore because the rapes were outside statute of limitations. Well, you know the guy's going to go down on 13 murder charges. They're going to, they, you know, he's going to fry for it. And what do you want? You know, all it did and these guys going out there rereading old laws, 45 year old laws and trying to work kidnapping into, you know, taking someone from the bedroom to the their own family room as kidnapping. It's hard if that's even going to pass a judge as real kidnapping, since there are very specific limitations on what constitutes kidnapping. But then, you know, you're going to introduce all this stuff a defense attorney will certainly introduce that you cannot prove without DNA that it was him when there's contradictory evidence that there's two guys involved. And one of them, uh, could have struck as early as 1975 in October, nearby to number one. And that was a rape originally attributed to the Easter Rapist, but it occurred uh, the October before in 1975 when D'Angelo was still down south around Visalia. So it, it just opens up a can of worms. And the trial is going to be some massive thing, I assure you. If they're going to go, if they're going to try him in Sacramento, for everything, for not just 13 murders now, but for 50 rapes, or a lot of these rapes, anyway, uh, you're talking one hell of a trial. And then, you know, defense attorneys trying to bring up all this other stuff. Uh, it's going to be quite uh, quite a circus that would be complex enough with 13 murder victims spread out northern Southern California and possibly in Visalia as well in Central California. 
that's already a very complex murder case, murder trial, but now add all the rapes and everything that are are something you can dispute, and it's just going to become confusing. And I think they're going to walk away, and no one's going to realize that he's going to be cleared from some of these, and we probably did have a, another guy involved early on. How else can you explain it? I mean, you can shave your legs and grow your hair back, but the descriptions, uh, you know, when the guy that has light hair and very thin hair on arms and legs, well, it's not shaved. It's very thin, blondish type of hair. And then the other guy has very hairy, dark arms and legs, blue eyes and shoulder length, dark hair. Those are two radically different people. That's not one morphing into someone else. You cannot grow hair on your arms and legs where you do not have it. It seems like it's just too much. You're right. It's unnecessary. And then if it wasn't a case of this high profile, I don't think they would do that oh, at no. all. Um, not in a not in a minute would they do it. Right, right. I mean, you got someone on 13 murder charges. Uh, let's let's deal with that. You got DNA for that. And you know you, you've got his ass. Let's just prosecute him on those and just be done with it. I'm hoping the guy makes it through the trial. I mean, he's like, what, 75 or something? Six? Yeah, 72 when they caught him, I think, in 2018. So he's about 74, 75 now. And Mm. it's going to be years before it comes to trial with all the more information they have to. I don't know how many special investigators with the district attorney's office are now involved trying to gather everything and trying to find out if there's a lot more victims. You know, and just try and find out how he did it. They have to put that together. They just cannot lay DNA before a judge and a jury and say, see, he touched her. They have to, you know, supply how he was there, how this was in a criminal circumstance, and uh, how he was possibly doing all of this stuff. And that's going to take some doing with a full-time cop and with a wife who's not going to talk. I don't think she will. You don't think she'll talk at all? No, well, she has a certain immunity. She's the wife. Just as an ex-wife now does not uh, allow her to go and testify against her husband, does it? You're right. It's going to be interesting, really, just to for them to try and figure out how this guy had done it, because it seems like he was just the invisible man. He was. Yeah, he was a genuine night phantom. Uh, there is. I've, I looked at all these, except for the one on the the identikits I'm talking about, except for the one on some street where nothing ever happened. Up in Ranch and up in Carmichael, nothing looks like him. That there's one with a short-haired guy who was seen on the street, and I probably have that on my website. And one of the you know witnesses in charcoal would be the article where I show this kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, it's the only one out of all of them that looks like a guy with short hair who could pass for being D'Angelo, except his hair is parted on the opposite side. But otherwise, it does kind of look like him. And that just might be coincidence, too. Otherwise, this guy was never seen. Wow, that's incredible. Not not seen, period. And when I was talking to Ken Clark, the detective in charge of Sacramento, he and his partner went back when they got the case, and they re-canvassed all the information. At that time, the sheriffs went and talked to the whole neighborhoods, you know, who was visiting the door. And they took down all this information on insurance salesmen coming to the door. Dianetics was a big thing with Scientology, so Scientology people came door to door trying to sell Dianetics, uh, pet people, whatever. Like 30 years after the fact, the sheriffs go back and they actually find out trace who all these guys were. 
and the, the one was an insurance agent. They found all the Dianetics guys. They could trace everybody who was uh, going door to door, and none of them were D'Angelo, of course. So he was that uh, he was just that much of a phantom at night. There was only one guy they couldn't trace, and he did follow a similar uh, uh, similar M.O. Uh, you might say to what D'Angelo might have been doing, but he did not match D'Angelo at all. He did have long hair. He might have been involved in a crime in 1973 in Rancho Cordova. People can see this on my uh, on my website about uh, the previous crime waves that could have been D'Angelo or somebody else in Rancho Cordova. He was known as the Cordova Cat, uh, a night uh, cat burglar who uh, entered a victims' home. One of the same victims as the East Area Rapist three years before she was attacked. And they can kind of make up their own mind if D'Angelo or someone else was active in the area as well. But it's just a massive crime spree. If it's one guy that did all this starting in 1972 and then over the whole state, I don't know truly how D'Angelo had the time to do all the cat burglary in Rancho Cordova and Carmichael. The attacks, the daytime stalking as this strange guy that did knock on doors and couldn't be traced. And they would go in the backyard. So he just didn't knock on the door. He'd go in the backyard. He'd get a, a screen off. As in the, uh, one of the incidents I do discuss, that happened very near to a victim of the East Area Rapist. And then the girl was inside the house. She ran out the front door and the guy left. So this was not just, you know, your insurance salesman knocking on the door. And this happened far too many times and does follow uh, how, what, uh, one of the cat burglars in Rancho Cordova a few years before the East Area Rapes began. He acted in a similar fashion on the Sardaway incident. And so it's really, you know, it's all online. I'm never going to publish a book on it. This was something purely to remain on the Quester files. It was to assist or solve the case, assist in helping. It did assist certainly in getting people to know the case. And they, it's still my number one section on the Quester files visited every day. I have analytics and I can see. They still come to see how this guy possibly could have done it all. Fantastic research. I really enjoyed this, John. I want you to take a moment to tell my listeners where they can find more information about you or any other. Are you going to be writing any books? Are you going to, are you working on something now or what? I have finished uh, Horoscope, which is on the Zodiac Killer. I did turn in my suspect finally last April to a jurisdiction. Uh, I'm proceeding on my own with it. I did get matching printing. I'm the first one to get matching printing, so I have been very uh, certain in my blog posts I have identified the Zodiac Killer, and the case is solved. But there's a lot to do there, I guess, politically. But I simply will be proceeding on my own with Horoscope, and will release my information in there. Uh, but it's something that requires a lot of legal protection, since this guy had family. And uh, there will be a book coming out on the search for Amelia Earhart, since I do a wide variety of mysteries. And I'm doing some novels, which is not really what people are interested in, but I'm nonfiction is just destroying me. <laughs> it takes so much to do the research. I'm getting too old for it all. And I think it's funner to write fiction, but I will be doing a couple more nonfiction and then sections on my website on other crime cases. And sadly, because of all the publicity over the East Area Rapist, I really don't announce my cases anymore. I was stuck to a public 
uh, investigation of the Zodiac because I began that first and said I would make my investigating rather public. I have a whole section on my website about the Zodiac killer. But after what I encountered with the East Area Rapes investigation, I was getting, you don't know how many hundreds of emails from people trying to give information. I would have to refer people to the FBI agent, to certain detectives. They wanted me to investigate their person of interest. They all had a suspect. And I had my own. I did my own investigation, but I was glad to forward to the authorities, everybody else's. But a lot of nutcases got involved. They would go through old yearbook pictures. They would take advantage of some of the victims. They were, there was one who was bold enough to slander one of the district attorney's special investigators online, and it just wasn't worth it. It was too much static was created. So I'm going to do my cold case investigations and then when finished, present a page on it or several sections on it, like the I-70 killer I've discussed. I had hoped to uh, go after NorCal, but they got him on DNA before I could even put up the full section on my website. I only had blog posts on him. And uh, so in future, it's going to be stuff like that. And they can just go to thequesterfiles.com. That's my, my web presence. Or follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Okay. Um, I will have the links up there in my show notes. John, many blessings to you, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me as a guest. All right, that's going to bring this one to a close, and I want to thank my special guest, John Quasar, for joining me again. This story is incredible, and it's just even more amazing that this man was ever caught in the first place. I want you to stay tuned for more of these interviews with some of the top true crime authors in the world every Tuesday here on 7. And if you want to get access to special editions, I invite you to become a member of our Patreon community by going to patreon.com slash seven, or you can click on the link in the show notes. I am your host, K-Town. I want you to stay safe, and I will see you next time on 7.